Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring two conversations, the first with director Yerzy Skolomowski and co-writer Yeva Piaskowska on the NYFF60 selection EO, and the second with director Nikiatu Jusu and producer Nikia Molteri on the NDNF51 selection Nanny. At 84, legendary director Yerzy Skolomowski has directed one of his spryest, most visually inventive films, following the travels of a peripatetic donkey named Eo. After being removed from the only life he's ever known in a traveling circus, Eo begins a journey across the Polish and Italian countryside, experiencing cruelty and kindness, captivity and freedom. Skolomowski imagines the animal's mesmerizing journey as an ever-shifting interior landscape, marked by absurdity and warmth in equal measure, putting the viewer in the unique perspective of the protagonist. Skolomowski has constructed his own bold vision about the follies of human nature seen from the ultimate outsider perspective. EO is now playing in our theaters. For showtimes and tickets, go to filmlink.org EO. Now, let's go to the conversation. Thank you both so much for being here and for the film. Um, seeing it on the big screen is just extraordinary. It's uh, the, the the sort of uh, immersive, immersive, expressive qualities of it, I think, uh, just soar in, in a space like this. So we're really, really excited to have you here with the film. Uh, just to dive right in, I've been uh, reading up on... Um, film and interviews you've done, and you've spoken a great deal about how your impetus to tell this story had to do with your interest in experimenting with a nonlinear narrative that was allowed, uh, enabled by the fact that the protagonist is an animal, and so dialogue is is really secondary to the development of the story and the character. Uh, could you just speak a bit about that, about this this question of nonlinearity and, and um your sort of your approach to abstraction within the the narrative that you crafted. This is Eva, <laughs> um, my co-writer, my co-producer, and most of it, my wife. <laughs> and then she also serves uh, occasionally as a translator of my English into the English. <laughs> um, so, as I understood, you're asking a general question, why? Why donkey? Why? And how does this happen? There are quite many reasons, and of I, I was told, speak shortly, you know, don't 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 bother, don't make people boring. Um, don't bother people. Don't bother people. So of course there are some elements which came to, to together when we decide to go to make this film. First of all, this is our fourth film which we made to. to Together, it started several years ago uh, with Four Nights of Buzana. Then we made Essential Killing. That you promised to be short here. Then seven years ago, we made Eleven Minutes, and then we start to think what could be the next one. And uh, we both discovered that we are 
fed up with the uh, traditional linear narration of the films, which, you know, tells the story from A to Z, introducing the characters in the first act, trying to get them into some kind of conflict, resolving that little conflict, making sure that we have those plot points. Um, I remember there must be some plot point on the 18th minute, and then, you know, you go into the second act, which also has to be shaped somehow, and then in the third act, on the 57th minute, there has to be another plot point leading to the final, whatever. Boring, boring, boring. <laughs> too many films done the same way, too many similar characters. I think we've seen them all. So, um, being still ambitious as I was from my early age until even now, um, we thought that maybe we can somehow break that traditional narration. And we tried to do it in, in 11th minute, and it didn't fully work what we were attempting. So we already had a reservation that maybe our palette, maybe our uh, tale of cards, tale of cards? Uh, stack of cards, I think. Stuff of cards, no. Stack, stack of cards. Pack, pack of cards, maybe it's, not, maybe it's not large enough, maybe we should bring some new element into it which would, you know, suddenly some ace which would really be trump card. So we thought perhaps an animal character, especially that I had those recollection, and this is the second element which I would introduce now. And we have to go back to the year of 1966 when I was a very young filmmaker uh, not being even 30 years old, just out of school, and I made my first professional feature film called Walkover. And this film was a modest production done for nothing. I had to play the lead because I couldn't afford the actor. So, um, and it was shown in a few cinemas in Warsaw, and one cinema in Paris. For some reason, you know, some crazy French guy decided to take this, the, the print from, from Poland and show it in, in, in Paris. And then suddenly, at the end of the year, I received a phone call from, from Paris from the editors of Cahiers de Cinéma, which was already established as the major a film magazine of, of the world, really. You know, every filmmaker was looking at Cahiers de Cinema and whatever they say was like, a, you know, the voice of God. By the way, it was run by Jean-Luc Jean Godard, so no wonder. 
Anyway, they called me and they wanted the interview with me. So I said, are you crazy? I, I just made one film uh, and nobody knows about me. Nobody knows this film. So why are you going to interview me? They said, the reason is that we just, as an editorial ensemble, we made the list of 10 best films of the year. <coughs> and yet your walkover took the second place. So I kept silent for <coughs> solid 10 seconds, maybe even longer, trying to get to somehow swallow this information. And then I said, and who took the first place? <laughs> and the answer was Robert Bresson with O Azar Baltazar. <laughs> and I haven't seen that film at that moment. So I said, can we postpone the interview for another day or two? So meantime, I would have a chance to see the number one. And that's what happened. I went, I purchased the ticket. I went to the cinema and I start to watch Bresson's film with my usual attitude of that time being a very young filmmaker, still learning, desperately learning what to do, you know, to, to make the film interesting. So I was watching it with a kind of semi-cynical and semi-professional look, how the things are being done, not letting the effect of the, of the film uh, uh, disrupt my process of learning. And uh, I don't know when, at what moment of the film I lost that semi-professional, semi-cynical look, but I lost it finding myself at the very end of the film with a memorable scene when Balthazar the donkey is dying on the field and is being surrounded by the herd of sheep, you know, with those little belts around their necks dingling slightly. It's, it's a breathtaking scene and I find myself crying. And that was honestly the only time before or after that I had tears in my eyes while watching the film. And I understood that Robert Bresson reduced me from that, let's call it cynical look, um, into the normal viewer, the one who purchased the ticket to get some kind of emotional kick and he really kicked me hardly, <laughs> hard, hard. He kicked me hard. And I got the big lesson uh, from him that when you watch something which you can believe that this is true, and I really watch the animal 
dying, believing that that this lovely character is dying, that this is the end of it. And this is why I cried. And the lesson is that if you watch something which would really be full of the truth and the truth about animals is that they don't know what the act is. They don't act. They are just being there. So I fully believe that I have seen the favorite character of the whole film dying. And that was stronger than any brilliant performance of, of the greatest actor in the world who would be performing, acting something, but somewhere in the back of the audience mind, at least in the back of my mind, would be the suspicion that, okay, it's brilliantly done, it's fantastic professional act, but it's not the truth. After the director would say cut, the actor would jump from his seat, go for a drink or make jokes or whatever he could do. Um, they do many different things. <laughs> and, uh, and that's it. And that's, that wouldn't be the truth. So um, that was the second el element that I remember that the animal can move me stronger than any great actor who would deliver his best performance. So having those two elements, obsession about break from the traditional narration and looking for the new element which would help us in that, in that process, we thought that, okay, casting an animal as perhaps the lead, the main character of the film, at least it would give us, f first of all, it would reduce the dialogue, which is, which is always the weakest thing in the films, you know. It's not always very well written, and it's not always very well acted, so that weak element of the film will be at least cut. And then, because of the lack of the dialogue of the main character, it could be exchanged for what I cleverly plan, my work with Pavel Miketin, who is phenomenal Polish classical music composer, his symphonies are really being played all around the world in the best philharmonics, with whom I already work, and I knew that Pavel wouldn't treat his work for the film as a step down from his Olymp of classical music, that he would do the comp the the, the, the the music for my film with the same amount of ambition and the same amount of talent that he would help me to create something like an inner monologue 
of the donkey, that he would help me to make this bridge between my main character and the audience by suggestions what's going on in donkey's head. And I think it worked basically because of the talent of of Pavel Mikietin. So uh, as I'm saying it between the lines, that this film is a bit different from the rest of my films, where unfortunately I had this weakness of pushing myself in front of everybody else, that it is my film, that I was really like putting myself in front of the film. In, with this film, I, for the first time, I properly used the talents of my collaborators, starting with Eva, who had written most of the script, then with Miketin, who did the music, which without his music, the film would be much less effective, obviously. And the cinematographer, Dimek, who did a really fantastic job, whom I pushed to do the crazy things. Whenever Dimek came to me and said, hey, maybe we should do the kind of unusual shot of what I said, no, 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 go even further, not the unusual, a very extremely unusual shot. So I was pushing him as much as I could and remember that DOPs are, they hate to take risks because when they take risks, they, they can be out of focus or maybe, you know, something wrong technically. And if the idiot director would use one of those shots, the whole blame would go on the DOP, not on the, on the idiot. So um, I had those guys who really helped me. And then the editor, fantastic editor, whose name is Agnieszka Glinska, with whom we made 11 minutes and she already proved that she's got this ability of um, going with emotions. And this film, it's made out of emotions because it, the film is our song of love for animals and for nature. We both love animals and we both love nature and we both are afraid that what's going on with the world those days, that we are destroying the nature so brutally for such a long time, and we are destroying the, the animals, the living creatures, so senselessly and and eating too many of them. By the way, we cut our meat consumption drastically, by two thirds, I guess. 
and half of my crew stop eating meat completely. I regret that we are not vegetarians yet. Maybe one day it will, it, it will happen. But I still have a feeling of guilt whenever I have the, the piece of ham or whatever it is. So more or less this is how it all happened. <laughs> Well, I have to say, you've answered many of my questions. Uh, we, we're, we're short on time, but I want to ask one more question to both of you uh, about the matter of tone, the tone of the film, and especially in the, in the, on the level of writing and, and your collaboration in crafting this narrative. Could you talk about how you balanced the sort of sweetness and tenderness of the character and his um, sort of subjectivity with the brutality, the callous sort of human world in which he finds himself, um, and as well as humor. There's a great deal of humor in the film. Could you just talk a bit about your thinking in terms of, of the tone and feel of the story? The tone of the, of the finished film, I think it has much more to do with all those elements that Yeju was talking about right now. But Obviously, sort of the you know the the, the starting point was the uh, in in the script that we were writing, and I think it was um, inherent in uh, in the subject matter in, our, in and in our you know main hero because um, of course before we started the the whole process, we also looked at all the literature, you know, at uh, I don't know Ovidius' Metamorphosis and. Um, Apuleius's uh, golden ass and you know all those I mean we've had those images of I don't know the donkey uh, and the you know Jesus coming into Jerusalem I mean you know all those associations that you have usually with the with the character of a donkey have a you know somewhat sort of allegorical a bit fairy taleish kind of tinge to them so um, so this was, of course, always there, and we knew it has to be a road movie, much like, you know, all those books I was just telling about. Uh, but I think the, the, exact, the, the exact tone that you refer to is, is, is the, you know, the mixture of all those elements that Yeju just mentioned, including music and the sound and the editing and, and, um, and photography, and all of them, and all of those collaborators have uh, always knew that, you know, the prime sort of... Um, the prime uh, tool uh, and the prime um, goal that we have in front of ourselves is speaking to the audience through emotions. And talking about my collaborators, because I only mentioned three of them, and there were many more who really had a creative impact of the film. Let me give you an example. We had the art director who was, who was great, but one day when we were looking for the locations for that uh, um, sequence of the forest walk, you know, he went his way, we went some other way, we were all looking for the best place to shoot it, we were taking the pictures, etc. And in the evening we all return 
into the base, and he, his name was Kuncevich. Kuncevich. Mietek Kuncevich. He said, look, uh, yeah, my pictures are basically very similar to your pictures, but I have one very specific. And he showed me the picture where there are Matsevas, you know, the, the, the Jewish tombs, deep in the forest, really inaccessible, completely inaccessible. But we decided to go next morning to that very place and we like it, of course, because they were really, they look great. And it was truth, you know, that in that remote forest, which was then completely wild, they, it had to be the cemetery 50 or 100 years ago in that very place. So we somehow felt that it would be good to to accept the reality, the fact that we came across such a place, we should have it on the film. And then I look at Demek, the DOP who was looking around, you know, the forest was huge and dense, you know, a lot of, lot of trees and ups and downs, you know, no way to, to go there with the camera, you know. But he said, yeah. He said, if I have one, two, three, four, four, if I have a six light towers there, and he showed more or less where, it, where he would imagine to have the light towers, can you imagine what it was to build six light towers in the dense forest? Where we, where, <laughs> where we couldn't even walk in, into the place. We did that because of our, of our ambition to use the best what, what the reality could offer us for this film. So uh, some people even don't don't notice those, those matsevas, but I am sure that some do, and I think it was worth it. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have right now, but I hope that you will all join us uh, to raise a glass to uh, Jurja and Eva in uh, the reception just across the way. Um, and thank you so much again, and thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Next up, we're revisiting a conversation from the 51st New Director's New Films with Nanny director Nikiatu Jusu and producer Nikia Molteri. A riveting Anna Diop commands every frame of director Nikiatu Jusu's feature debut, a breakout at this year's Sundance, where it won the Dramatic Grand Jury Prize. 
In the psychologically complex fable of displacement tinged with supernatural horror, Dia plays Aisha, a woman who recently emigrated from Senegal and is hired to care for the adorable daughter of an affluent couple living in New York's Tribeca neighborhood. Increasingly unsettled by the family's volatile home life, though desperate to make enough money to bring over her young son from Senegal, Aisha begins to unravel, finding her life in America to be more nightmare than dream. Mixing domestic melodrama with American genre elements and West African folklore, Nanny is a spellbinding experience that defies expectation. Nanny is now playing in our theaters for one week only, with a special holiday promotion. Buy one ticket, get one free, for all screenings through November 27th. Enjoy the conversation and get tickets at filmlink.org slash nanny. Um, a lot of people here who I'm sure have questions, but I want to just, I'll start with a couple and then I'll open it up. Maybe you can both start because I know you've been thinking about this film, working on this film for quite a while. Um, and it's a very, it's a very layered film um, with a lot of different points of entry. And I'm just wondering what the starting point was, if there was a particular idea, character, image, theme. Yes. Yeah, so uh, multiple things. Uh, so I've been write, trying to write this script on and off for eight-ish years, and uh, the origin of the story starts with my mother. She's Sierra Leonean. She's out here in the audience, and <laughs> she's seen every rough cut but still cries, so I did something right. Uh, but, I, you know, it was a project that originated. She did some domestic work on and off, so among other jobs, uh, domestic work, was one of the most accessible jobs that my mom could get consistently. And, and then I got to, fast forward, I got to Tish. Um, it was something that was gestating and I got to NYU grad film. And literally the, the visual manifestation of what I had been sitting on was happening around Tish. Like I saw all of these black and brown women pushing white children in strollers and I was like, this is a sign. I try to pay attention to the universe when it speaks. And so I put pen to paper, but I didn't want to tell a straightforward drama uh, rendition of a domestic African des domestic worker. Um, and obviously there were multiple influences, but yeah, those were the bare bones origins of the story. And Nikia, you've been attached from how long? How, how long ago were you? Did you come on board for this? <laughs> um, I mean, we when we first met, it was one of the first projects she shared with me that she was kind of dancing around and. Me personally, I my aunts are Aisha to a certain degree. Like I had a lot of family members that, you know, when they came over, they were the nannies on the Park Avenue, Upper East Side. So it was just familiar and um, really important to me just to excavate what that is. I hope I don't fall in front of y'all. <laughs> I was going to add, uh, Nakia, she was pivotal in me finishing the script. And so... Oftentimes when rising directors ask me, like, what is what are the variables that helped you to make your first feature? One variable that is the key variable <laughs> is a creative producer who really believed in the story just as much, if not more than I did. Because you get in your head, you're like, this is too specific. Nobody's going to give us money. Nobody cares about this story. But she was really just integral to me finishing the draft that we ultimately got financed. So to come back to something you said, you said you didn't want to do a straightforward drama. Yeah. So I think, you know, when you think if you're going to have a film about 
an immigrant experience. You might think of it being more of like a social realist type film. You've kind of worked with genre, but even within genre, not in entirely expected or straightforward ways. It's a horror film, but I think you use horror to open up into more like complex psychological and political areas. And within horror, you also bring in like folklore. And, you know, so you can talk a little bit about just the what you conceptualize this film as this you had the story but you told it in a, I think a very surprising way yeah so I want to be clear that no matter how our film is marketed and distributed no <laughs> you know <laughs> um it's <laughs> there are people in the audience who might <laughs> want to hear what you it's very much cross genre and yes. the films that influence me like the filmmakers who influ influence me like um uh, Lynn Ramsey, uh, Park Chan-wook, Bong Joon-ho, um, Usman Sembeni. Like, these are filmmakers who really lean into multiple, multiple genres within one film. And so I'm not naive to think that my film is one thing. Like, I know that it's multiple things wrapped up into this really eclectic package of a film. Did I answer the question? I think so. <laughs> No, that was good. Um, but do you want to elaborate on what you what cross 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 genre? Cross genre For example, um, a film like The Host, Bong Juno, like you have this creature and you have creature creation. Even Guillermo del Toro, who I really love, mm -hmm. um, you have this family unit at the heart of the story. It's about these familial interactions that are universal, but you have like this icing of creature creation and monsters and. Um, I think those elements, like you s alluded to, are a way into stories that typically might feel like a PSA. So that's what I mean by cross genre. So I think when the, with and then you have the love story and you know all the other elements happening. I'm curious about one particular aspect of the film, which is how um, you incorporated um, folklore and mythology, specifically West African folklore. And you talk a little bit about the importance of that. Yeah, I, you know, I really wanted to not just, it's hard to create creatures on a budget. <laughs> Do I wish we had $50 million more to create a mermaid? Sure. Uh, but I really did want to peek into the world of Anansi, the spider, and Mami Wata because they're two of the more visible figures in West African folklore, and African diaspora is so prevalent in the United States that I think that I'm really interested in that cultural specificity within the paradigm of American cinema. So I'm interested in maneuvering the African immigrant experience through that that fantastical, those fantastical elements. But also like the trickster figures, <laughs> Universal, you have Br'er Rabbit, um, you have uh, Native Americans have their individual trickster figures. So there is a universality to both Mamiwata and Anansi the Spider. And I just want to add a quick point, you know, when we were financing and, and kind of like getting everything together, we had a lot of questions and I'd go so far as to say pressure to kind of simplify and pick one or the two. And I just want to say we really stuck to our guns and trusted that our audience would follow us. You know, I think people are ready to be inundated with something other than what we're used to seeing. Yeah, I think the specificity is, is really important to the film. Um question about casting um can you talk a bit about your amazing lead actress? i love casting i love that part of the process 
Um, so much hinges on casting. So uh, Anna is someone who I literally just superficially saw her face and was like, this is a face I could look at for 90 minutes plus. And so I was hoping that in addition to that face, there was some range. And so we got lucky because we, we had formal auditions at the peak of the pandemic over Zoom. Uh, we had an amazing casting director, Kim Coleman, who does uh, just stellar casting across the board. And so she showed me a lot of Aishas, a lot of Aishas. And I was rooting for Ana and she killed it. So it came down to her and a couple of, of, of young ladies. But ultimately, I also wanted to do chemistry casting because I, I think chemistry is a lost art on the screen. Instead of just forcing people together because this person is an A-lister and this person is a B-plus lister, let's throw them in a film. But that chemistry doesn't translate when you do it like that. So you know, I peered people up. Um, and ultimately came up with the cast of like Michelle Monaghan, uh, uh, Sinquois, you know, everyone was kind of paired up and bounced mm -hmm. off each other in the audition process for the most part. Rose, the little girl was hard because these kids have spent like half their lives in a pandemic. Uh, so, <laughs> so it was yeah. really tricky. Um, to cast that age range online, I'm not online, but via like over the screen as opposed to in person. So we winnowed it down to three or four girls and Rose just had this like, this maturity that I knew that we needed. I knew I needed a little girl who was not rambunctious, but was able to, she was so good with the horrific elements that she literally did not react when <laughs> on the raised the knife. Like I had to, She's so measured, mm. you know, and so mature. <laughs> I'm like, you're scared, Rose, the night that she's gonna kill you. But you need, you need that maturity because you need a child who's not gonna freak out when they see fake blood or a knife or a prop knife. Um, so those were some of the elements that we thought about when we were casting. All right, just one more for me and then I'll open it up. You mentioned the difficulty of, you know, having creatures on a budget. Seems like you're a producer here. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, the film, um, I don't want to talk about figures and everything, but like, you, the film looks amazing. Thank you. And Rena Yang, Jonathan Guggenheim. Any opportunities to shout out my department heads? Like, and I, I don't know if anyone is here. For, oh, yes. Chloe's here from the art department. And Chris. And I think more people Chris than that, here. maybe. Chris Let me not start shouting people here. out because I'm going to leave people out. But. Um, yes, our, our department heads and our teams, our creative teams were just so brilliant. And we had the same interview process for them that we did for our cast. So really it was about finding people who had a singular vision, but also understood the bigger vision. Mm -hmm. Um, we had a really talented team. Okay. You want to talk a bit more about this? About the creatures? Your original the questions? Team. About that putting this whole thing together. the creatures come together. <laughs> you know, no, I mean... To be fair, like, we really, it was divine intervention. Everyone was shooting that summer. Like, everyone had decided they were going to shoot their film before COVID came back in the fall. And Rena, we had one call and knew. Yeah. Jonathan, we had a couple calls, but we kind of knew. And they were both, like, right on the precipice of, like, leaping ahead. Like, Rena's doing everything now, and Jonathan had just done Scream, and it just... Yeah. The stars aligned um, and the project, you know, I think we just, 
it just worked out. Actually. And then the VFX. With teams. VFX, you know, we, you know, VFX was tough, um, but we had really great partners that believed in the story. And, you know, <laughs> you never want people on your team who believe they're doing favors. You want people who are invested. And we, we really got lucky because it was not, the budget <laughs> it was the script you know what I mean and they they knew we were gonna like nail it no matter what they believed in us all right we're gonna take some questions from the audience and I think we have microphones going around so if uh yeah we do so if you want to raise your hand we'll get a microphone to you yeah I noticed that both in Suicide by Sunlight and this one you have a lot of use of blue color scheme can you talk about your use of blue color scheme just within Nanny? Thank you for noticing. Uh, I, the aquamarine landscape. He was alluding to your <laughs> short film as well. That, I uh, love that. Did. Thank you. Um, I love, I, I have a, an infatuation with like a lagoon aqua landscape. I think water is a motif in a lot of my work um, for various reasons. And so that lends to it, but also our art department really leaned into the water motif in Nanny particularly, but also juxtaposing the blues and greens in Amy and Adam's home versus the blues and greens that we see <laughs> All right, Greg, on the screen on. for new directors, new films. Um, but yeah, it's a prevalent motif. I'm gonna make sure my next film I have no blues <laughs> at all. Hi, um, this was such a wonderful experience. Thank you so much for this, Thank you. For this movie. Um, I am really curious about your inspiration for sound um, and really putting, putting that together. I just really noticed a lot of really intricate uh, blending of both uh, diegetic sound and also just in the world. So I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yes, yes. The soundscape has, is, was immensely important to, to us. And Nakia knows, like, I try to put... I try to start planning the landscape in, you know, within the script. I mean, I'm the writer director, so it's easy to write those the soundscape into the actual script. Um, I love filmmakers like Lynn Ramsey who really just feature the soundscape as a character in itself. And so I knew that I wanted I wanted sounds to be a transitionary device as well. So like hard cuts that like throw us into the next scene versus diegetic sounds in the world that um, take Aisha out of these moments where she's fixating on the supernatural. Um, all of those were elements. And also we got to work with an amazing artist, Tenariel, who collaborated with Bartek for our score. And so we were able to build the motif of breaths and breathlessness into the soundscape because, you know, the whole film is essentially about just being capitalism, having a chokehold on us in these different ways, figuratively, but literally also obviously losing her child to drowning and that breathlessness. So thank you for noticing the work that we put into the soundscape. Hi, can you, um, I just loved it. So cheers. <laughs> cheers, Congrats. I wish I had mine, cheers. Yeah, um, can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with Rena with your cinematographer? Yeah. And I'm also interested to know like, are you, did you storyboard, did you shortlist? Is it more references, is it a combination of both? Like what was that process like for you? These are good questions. Uh, yes, so we did, we actually had a really informal way of exchanging imagery. Rena is not a big talker. 
<laughs> Rena is brilliant. Uh, she has a vision, but she's not super verbose. So we exchanged a lot of imagery really informally, literally over iPhone. Like we created these albums in iPhotos and would just upload stuff like in real time. If she stumbled across something or I did. And then we had more formal elements. She did a diagram, which I love that she drew directly on the location photos that we shot while we were scouting and doing tech scouts. She literally drew grids on top of that. So that was really helpful for me, for my brain. And then we had a, an amazing storyboard artist that Nakia actually found. Yeah, I mean, we were really careful about storyboarding the big kind of like set pieces and the, the VFX scene so that we could kind of walk in not blind, um, but then also plan like what was going to be practical and then what was actually going to be VFX. Because when you have a shoestring budget, you got to pick and choose your battles. We don't have to talk about the budget anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they get it. <laughs> This one over here. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask a bit about the eight years of development and how the project evolved thematically over this time. Did you say thematically? Can you elaborate? Um, just because it felt very topical, obviously, after everything we've been through. And obviously, it's been something that you've been thinking about since eight years ago. So yeah. just how it's evolved. Yeah, that's it. People always are curious about, like, how did you not give up on this idea that you chipped away at for so long, which is a good question. Um, partly I'm insane, and also the other element is that <laughs> I couldn't shake the story, so I, I just, I have a process of collecting imagery, like, as an ongoing process. Everything that I write starts with imagery, um, and I'm old school, but I'm still on Tumblr, uh, I love Tumblr. I think there's some amazing imagery there. I have a blog that I just, I frequent Tumblr and I always just keep track. I think the key for every project, whether it's eight years or one year, is to keep some sort of documentation of what inspires you that speaks to that project. So I had imagery from photographers I love. I had imagery from painters I love. I had imagery, I had poems, uh, Warsan Shire, po her poetry and just collecting all kinds of disparate elements, but that still spoke thematically to the film really helped for me to stay, you know, in the story. I feel like my question is very simple, but um, the mermaid always, whenever the mermaid had her, her arms are always facing, were like up towards the surface. Did you choose to do that? Like, just like visually, cause they were shadows or was that like, was it purposeful? Whatever you interpret it. <laughs> it's your film now. It's in the world. <laughs> um, no, uh, you know what? The, the stunt elements were tricky in the water. And so at some point, we really had to be strategic about her arms. I'm kind of sad that you noticed that. Like, is that a compliment? No. Uh, so let me not say too much. but. You know, it's tricky with water. Water is an element that is very unpredictable. And having two stunt women like sink in water is not as simple as it sounds. And so we had a lot of navigating what that could look like. And then we had like practical effects and, and CGI effects that came later. 
So to just be clean and safe, oftentimes her arms needed to be down. But when she was surfacing with Mami Wata, her arms were were raised and because it's an up ending and she's, you know, coming back to the surface. I don't know if I answered your question. Okay. Hi, Nikiatu. How you doing? <laughs> I'm great. Depends but, on your question. <laughs> first of all, great film. Thank you. I loved every second of it. I just wanted to ask, how does it feel after eight long years to see your <laughs> dream child realize, you know? You should ask your sister. Hey, Nikki, how does it feel? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how it feels for her dream child to be born, but as a producer, no, it's very rewarding, Kari. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> we have, I think we have a couple down here. What was your favorite scene to direct? <laughs> Autumn. Uh, uh, I hope there are no children in the audience. I can't see. You know, the romance is fun. It's more fun than I thought. But also, uh, I, I love the water work. I love water. I love stunt people. I really respect what they do. And it was just so intricate mapping out some of the stunt work. I love all the athleticism that we had and, and navigating water and jumping into water and shooting underwater. We had an underwater unit, Ian Taka, Takahashi. Mm -hmm. um, and he was our underwater DP. And him seeing him communicate with Reno was really fun. So all of the underwater work, good question, Autumn. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Well, if I'm answering, yeah. um, I would say... It's all about the prep for me, like the preparation. <laughs> Lesson. Shooting is cool, but preparation is really exciting. That's important. First of all, congratulations. Um, it's Okima. There you are. <laughs> um, congratulations to you both. As a producer, girl, Nikki. <laughs> My Which hat is one? off, sis. My hat is off. <laughs> oh, okay, I thanks. Can't hold me. I need it. Thank yes. you. Thank and you. Nikki Yatu, the question is for you specifically. We see this beautiful movie. We've seen all the clippings. We've seen all the deadline articles and all the beguiling things that come after all of this, <laughs> no, right? Okay, what are you about to say? How do you, as a creative, take care of yourself in the midst of the chaos of the good and the crazy? Because I think we all like are like, oh my God, we want to be there. We want to, you know, we want the Amazon Studios joint to open up yeah. our film. But like, what do you do for yourself in the midst of all of this to celebrate that after eight years, the baby was actually born? Man. You know, you have that moment in your brain where you're like, am I going to tell the truth? Am I going to tell them what they, I think they need to hear? <laughs> Tequila for sure. Sleep. Um, but no, self-care is so important in this process. And actually, I did. we did the Sundance Lab. So we did um, the Screenwriters Lab, Producing Lab, Directors Lab for this project, all three of those labs. And they really funneled us through. And I, one of my mentors, I don't know if you all are, all are familiar with Corinne Kusama, The Invitation, Jennifer's Body. She was one of my mentors. And Casey Lemons was also one of my mentors. And I was so delighted that they both organically mentioned self-care as part of their mentorship. They weren't just talking about craft. They really were clear that if you don't take care of yourself as the director, 
um, and create a space that feels safe for everyone else, then it's just going to be really toxic and not as strong of a film that it can, as it can be. And so that's an important question. But yes, I, I practice many variations of self-care when I can. Be quick. Congratulations, Nikia. Thank you. Um, could you say something about the locations? I thought your locations were really, really stunning. Um, and of course, all the production design that went with sort of heightening it, et cetera. But also just keeping in mind that, you know, you shot this during pandemic yeah. and I don't know what, I'm assuming these were locations and not sets. But I'm going to let Nakia take that one. From one amazing filmmaker with a lot of locations herself. You had a lot of locations. Go ahead. Um, well, we had a really great location manager, very resilient, um, strong-willed. And <laughs> um, so you're correct. We, we didn't have a ton of stuff on a, on a set. Um, we happened to find people who had beautiful locations who actually were interested in film and liked the idea of participating um, and... Uh, we, you know, our condo location was real. Like everything you saw on screen, like we didn't build that up. That person just let us in and we just, we did our best. We just did our best. It's really hard to extrapolate on this it was stage. It was, I mean, it was hard. Like yeah. the condo gave us a hard time. Getting into moneyed spaces in New York is not cheap. So yeah. Like the condo was, we lost it, then we got it back, and then they were negotiating. So the condo was trickier than it looks. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And then with the airport, it was navigating COVID, and everybody was so stressed. But the day we shot, it was that might have been like the, the heavens opened locations. up, yeah. and somebody was watching over us. I think mm -hmm. my dad was watching over us for that part of the sh for the whole shoot. Actually, we didn't get a positive COVID test in Zone A. Those of you who know what I'm talking about know what I'm talking about until the second to last day of production. Um, it's It was challenging, but we made it through. And we didn't shut down. We didn't. Almost. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> All right. Congratulations. Thank uh, you. It was really beautiful, the movie. And I wanted to you to talk about uh, what was the toughest moment during these eight years, like the moment that you kind of sit down with your dream and your huh. reality, <laughs> and then you choose to follow the dream. That's a good question. There were a lot of really difficult moments. Um, the most difficult was... My dad got sick. Everybody, whoever, if y'all have followed any part of me, you know that I cried like a baby when we won the grand jury prize for Sundance because my dad got sick as I was trying to finish the script for production. And um, I just really told myself that I, I have to finish this because I don't think he's going to be here much longer. And I don't know what grief is going to do to my work ethic. I mean, we know what grief does to our work ethic, but in a capitalist system, nobody cares about your grief. So I knew that I, I had to hurry up and finish the draft. And so there was a clock that was externalized by, by that, what I was navigating with my dad being sick. But yeah, everything after that, like after losing someone that you love so much, everything else becomes 
you just get perspective about what you're actually working on. Like this is something that is such a privilege to be able to make a film about my lineage and about the people I love in a pandemic. It's such a privilege. So I was able to get context after losing my dad in the process. Um, but that was the most difficult part, writing while having a, a sick relative, uh, a sick parent. I feel like we need an upbeat ending. <laughs> He's so, like, more jokes. No, so we'll take one more question. Less trauma. <laughs> but, uh, okay, we will take one more, <laughs> since there clearly are more from the audience. Let's do one more. Okay, this is not a question. I just wanted to thank you so much for following through after those eight years of you oh. writing this, because it really hit home for me. My first job when I moved here was babysitting. So when I was watching this, I was like, oh my God. Was it triggering? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is me. Um, but it was just really nice to shine a light on that experience for people because I feel like not a lot of people experience that from that side, you know? And when I was here and like experiencing that, I didn't have anyone to talk to about it or like to, to explain like my feelings, like how I felt while doing this job. So I just wanted to thank you for following through with your story. I really appreciated it, and I think it was beautiful. It was thank beautiful, you. Beautifully written. Thank you for sharing that, too. Yeah. I think you can't really top that. That's a great place to end. Yeah, we're not going to top that. Thank you, both of you. Thank for, you. Thanks, thank you guys Dennis. for coming. Thank you, y'all.